Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. Oh, I'm Elliot. That was weird. <laughs> uh, but we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Okay, we got a real eclectic week lined up for you all. But before we get into it, there's something I wanted to share. So this is really exciting. Last night, as of this recording, was the DGA Awards or the Directors Guild of America Awards. And they, for the past 75 years that they've existed, they've been a really good barometer for the Oscars of who will win Best Director. Only eight in the history of the 75 years haven't won the Oscar for Best Director. Most recently being Sam Mendes won the DGA Award and then Bong Joon-ho won the Oscar for Best Director. But last night, the Daniels won, which is really exciting, which means that they have a good chance of winning the Oscar. Um, another exciting piece was that for the first time feature film director award, Charlotte Wells, who directed After Sun, also won. Yes, we love her. And Sarah Doza, who directed the documentary that we loved, Fire of Love, won in there as well. So pretty solid night. Yeah. And really exciting. So I wanted to share that news because it's looking really good for a everything everywhere. I won't say a sweep, but a sweep. At you the love awards. I I do. I, I've, I have become more actively aware of them and the things going on with them since we started the podcast. Mm-hmm. So, which I think is important. <laughs> but let's get into All the right. movie. Let's get into the movies that we watched this week. Uh, you kicked us off with a mystery movie pick. I did. Um, this was Valentine's Day week that we watched these movies. And so I decided to pick a little romance film. I picked the 2018 drama romance Rafiki. It was directed by Winuri Kahu, written by her as well. Um, And Jenna Kato Bass also co-wrote it. It's based on the short story Jambula Tree, written by the Ugandan writer Monica Arak Dinyeko. The two kind of main stars of the film are Samantha Mugatsia as Kenna and Sheila Muniva as Ziki. 
The synopsis. I didn't love the synopses that I found, but mm. this was the best one I could find. Um, Kenna and Zeke long for something more. Despite the political rivalry between their families, the women resist and remain close friends, supporting each other and to pursue their dreams in a conservative society. When love blossoms between them, the two women will be forced to choose between happiness and safety. Mm. What did you think of Rafiki? Yeah, I knew absolutely nothing about this movie. So when it came up on screen, I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's very collage and very colorful in these opening credits. So I'm all in. Collage it, and color. Gotcha. Yeah, it was very cool. I, I really liked the opening credit sequence. And it was, it was interesting because I felt like the whole movie was so colorful and it was kind of set against this very non-colorful backdrop. Mm-hmm. Like the characters really popped and that both in look and then their personalities popped mm-hmm. as well, um, which I thought was really, really beautiful. And I mean, at the core of it is the Kenna and Zeke chemistry, which I mm-hmm. thought was incredible. Yeah. that That's the reason alone to check out this movie. The The chemistry between these two characters is is really great and they look great. Yeah, their style. So cool. Yeah, they just like, you were obsessed with Kenna's hat collection. Yeah, I'm envious. She has some great hats. Really good hats. I thought that this film did a really good job. This is pretty new, 2018. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, to back up a bit, I feel like watching a lot of queer romance or, or at least queer narratives that aren't as new can just be so focused on like how hard it is and how homophobic society is and how awful things will happen. And certainly that has been, and to some extent and depending on where you are and who you are can continue to be true, but like it gets a little tough to always just see the trauma narratives. Yeah. And I thought that this one this film did such a good job of balancing queer joy with the reality of living in a queer or being queer in a world that isn't always embracing or supporting that mm-hmm. without being reductive about it. Like I thought it yeah. had a really complex balance of showing the reality that there are moments of joy and moments of trauma and moments of despair and moments of deep love and like it's not one or the other. Yeah. And I was really pleased with seeing that as a depiction. Yeah. No, it was interesting because I was I was kind of looking some stuff up after just to get a little bit more context and, you know, learning that homosexuality is illegal in Kenya and it's outlawed in Kenya. Not knowing that going in, you can definitely infer that from the film, but it's not like Kenna and Zeke are necessarily being pursued by the law, but it's about their immediate community. Yeah, which I think both gives the film, because my understanding is that uh, it is really important to Winuri Kahu to tell uh, Kenyan stories, African stories, but also to not be reductive about them. Like she talked about, I, I saw an interview with her where she talked about wanting to focus on the elements of Kenya that are... um liberal and modern because they exist it's not like it's a blanket yeah like, okay so there's just like two people here and that and, and that's and it there, right and, that's and, a, and yeah. you get that in the film that there is these gradients of 
how the community existed in, in different spaces within this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that certainly with some of the conversations that Zeke and Kenna have together. Um, but I think she also doesn't deny the difficulties of like this space for these characters. Yeah. So it shows both sides, which is not an easy thing to do no. to either be overly like critical or to be overly like glossing over the difficulties. Yeah. Um, and I thought she balanced that really, really well. Yeah. And, and it, it also depict difficulties that would exist whether our main characters were queer or not. Mm-hmm. Like just the, uh, the impact that gossip has within yeah. this community and how yeah, there was it a can character af- that you, Oh man. <laughs> um, did not like, <laughs> but like just the effect and the, the sort of ripple effect that happens within the community and how it so quickly it can just spread like fire and people flip people's opinions of certain people on a dime. So this is so interesting that you say that, that like while this film does have such a particular focus on place and like it's rooting itself in the reality of Kenya, um, the director who said that she wanted to portray a normal love story. Like that was um, what she set out to do. And then she said she wanted to acknowledge the heroic challenges of choosing a difficult love. Mm. Which I thought was such a beautiful phrase, like choosing difficult love, because that doesn't just have to do with sexuality. It doesn't just have to do with like the laws of a country. Mm-hmm. There's like that's such a nuanced term that can apply to so many different types of relationships. Yeah. And I thought that was really beautiful. It is. And I totally felt the, like that first statement that it's just, I like I didn't feel in the film that this was some Romeo and Juliet kind of relationship. I mean, there's kind of like elements of like, <laughs> Oh, they yeah. shouldn't be together. But yeah, I felt like it was just two people that connected and started falling for each other. And it was beautiful, but it wasn't easy. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I felt like the balance that she just spoke of is exactly how I felt having not known that going in. So one of the funny things, uh, because you didn't know much about this film, was the title of the movie is Rafiki, mm-hmm. which means friend. And it subtitled that like it captioned that when the title card came up, which doesn't always happen mm-hmm. um, when you have English language captions. Sometimes they just say the title of the movie in the um, original language. And so you didn't know that this was a queer film and you were like, ah, they seem like they're giving each other looks. And you're like, but it's called Friend, so maybe not. (laughs) And I was reading up on the choice to title it Friend. um, And when when Eri Kahu said it was to, quote, indicate the need in an intolerant society to disguise a same-sex romance as a platonic friendship. Mm, Gotcha. Oh. But you picked up on those vibes right away. Oh, yeah. You're like, look at how they're looking at each other. Yeah. This is a gay movie. (laughs) This is like freaking kiss already. (laughs) Um, Yeah. While there is a lot of really nice, really sweet moments between Kenna and Zeke throughout this film. Yeah, there's some real there's some real tough stuff. Yeah, it's not real tough stuff. It's interesting because I found it on a list um, of black queer joy, like Mm. the uh, letterbox list. And I was like, cool. I mean, like, I don't always want to be. I don't always want to be um, watching or consuming queer art that's solely trauma focused. And I also think it's really important as a white person to not always be consuming art um, from people of color that's solely trauma focused. Yeah. Um, 
And after watching Fruitvale Station last week, it yeah. felt like I that wasn't the direction I wanted to go in. And then I think this film does elevate joy more than anything, but mm-hmm. it is not without its really difficult to watch moments. Yeah, for sure. But still, I think it's I think it's worth diving into because I think that the characters that exist within this story are really well fleshed out and really compelling to watch. Even our peripheral characters, they add so much to yeah, the, a, what the community is like and what living here is like and the effects that it has on our two main characters. Yeah. This film is so, um, it is so stylish. Just like the movie itself is stylish. Yeah. And it's pretty, it's pretty vibrant. Mm-hmm. Um, like the score, the, it's a very, um, like kinetic's not the right word, but it's, it's a film that's moving. There's a lot of movement in shots, but then there's these moments usually with these kind of secondary or tertiary characters that are quiet. Yeah. And where not a lot of dialogue is said. And there's so much meaning in those moments. Um, and this film really does without, you know, I, I, we can't really get into it too much because it would start to get into spoilers. But I think that the film does a really great job of always being, uh, maintaining a specific hold on like place. Like this is in Kenya. Well, at the same time, I think that a lot of the moments around the reactions of parents and community members and friends and the different reactions from different parents, community members and friends can be an incredibly relatable thing regardless of where you're living. Oh, totally. Yeah. And so I, I just, I think that's such a delicate balance to be able to strike and so impressive that uh, Kahu does to maintain specificity of place and yet still be an accessible film that, can be relatable to people who aren't from this place. Yeah, totally. Totally agree with that. The other thing I found out afterwards is that Winnerika, um, who is set to direct a, a film adaptation of the young adult novel, The Thing About Jellyfish. Which is freaking awesome. One of your favorite books. Yeah, I loved it. Worth a, worth a re-read, re, I think. It's by Ali Benjamin. I That just came right out of my head, so I don't know if that is true. <laughs> Um, I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah. Good memory. Nice. When I was looking some some stuff up, another thing that I learned about this movie is that it's actually the first Kenyan movie that was screened at the Cannes Film Festival, which is pretty nuts for considering this came out in 2018. Yeah. That's so, it feels so late in the game, but what a, what a prideful moment. I think that the, um, the narrative around this film being made and being theatrically, theatrically released is really interesting because this film was banned in Kenya. Yeah, it was I read filmed that too. in Kenya. It yeah. was made by a Kenyan filmmaker, but it was banned in Kenya due to being too hopeful no. about like it seems like and I could be wrong, but it seems like if it had a really negative and really trauma-focused portrayal of a queer relationship, it may not have been banned. But that's God. not and and there was Oof. opportunities. It's probably not the right word. There was discussions about if you change this the film won't be banned and Winari Kaihu wouldn't change those things right so it was banned in Kenya but in order to qualify as inter- best international film for the Oscars it has to play in the country that it's from yeah and so they did manage to get a one week suspension lift where it played in theaters in Kenya for just one week in order to qualify for the Oscars and the shows all sold out incredible so there's like this yeah there's just I feel like even that story speaks to the way that the film itself balances all of these really complex things 
to not be like reductive and to suggest that being in Kenya is like an awful place to be. The film does not suggest that at all. Mm -hmm. But it also acknowledges the difficulties, realities, complexities of life for these two characters in this specific place. I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. So how did Rafiki make you feel? It made me reflective and grateful when it comes to our relationship. Um, Just the fact that we are fortunate to live in a place where no one bats an eye that you and I can be in a relationship together. And I think that that is extremely fortunate and really, and really lucky that we're, that we're privileged enough to have that. And I'm grateful for being able to be in a relationship with you. That's sweet. Yeah. Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. How to make you feel? Uh, it made me hopeful for how love finds places to root, even in soil that wouldn't be fertile for it. Can't stop love. <laughs> what the world needs now. <laughs> love. Sweet love. And R.I.P. Burt Bacharach. Okay. Like I said, this is an eclectic week. So my mystery movie pick was the 1995 adventure comedy, Tommy Boy. Adventure? <laughs> yeah, what? The fact that it led with adventure is like, well, all right, all right. It was uh, directed by Peter Siegel and written by Bonnie Turner and Terry Turner. It stars the late Chris Farley as Tommy, David Spade as Richard, Brian De- Dennehy as Big Tom, Bo Derek as Beverly, uh, Julie Warner as Michelle, and Rob Lowe as Paul. Synopsis is, after his auto parts tycoon father dies, an underachieving son teams up with a, with a snide accountant to try and save the family business. Okay. What do you think of Tommy Boy? This is an Elliot movie. <laughs> go, go on. This is not a movie I would ever pick to watch on my own. Mm. I'm not a big sketch comedy person. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big slapstick comedy person. Which mm-hmm. I feel like Chris Farley was pretty big into like physical comedy. physical humor, yeah, like um, like Kramer style stuff. I mean, we've been rewatching Friends very slowly, mm-hmm. and every time Ross does like a physical comedy, you lose it. Like you think it's so funny. There's this one really silly bit where he just like doesn't get the phone. Oh yeah, Joey tosses him the phone, and he fumbles it he just fumbles it on the ground and you think it's the funniest thing ever it's such a so good in bit. so many ways this is an elliot movie and i swear you've had me watch this once before couldn't remember if we watched it together or not i swear we watched it when we lived by southgate mall which was a long time ago snl movies in general i find to be like strange beasts they're like very particular brand of humor and you like know that you're not getting into like you know you're getting into something that's going to be pretty shallow. Like it's a lot it's a lot of jokes and bits. It's a lot of jokes and bits. Yeah. It's jokes and bits strung together with a loose plot. Yeah. That's you know, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> this film in particular felt like it took forever for like the initial incident to happen. Yeah. I'm like, why is there so much lead up to when the film itself starts? I like, make room for the jokes and bits. So many jokes and bits. Um, I want to know, like, what is it you like about Tommy Boy? I didn't hate Tommy Boy, mm-hmm. did not love Tommy Boy, but like, what do you like so much about it that you would watch it? Uh, I mean, again, I think that there's like this 
deep nostalgia for it. I mean, I watched it quite a bit growing up. And what'd you like about it then? Uh, the jokes and bits. I think you like it's like you're saying. I I like the slapstickiness of it. Um, it and because it's again, like you said, it's such a simple plot that as a kid, it's easy to follow. That's fair. Yeah. And I grew up in an SNL house. Like my par- yeah. my parents watched SNL, and I wasn't allowed to watch SNL. And then I watched SNL deep into junior high, and then kind of fell off after high school or around high school. Um. But this was kind of in a similar vein as like Wayne's World. Like it's just goofy and there's a little bit of heart, but it's really simple. So I think that's where, because I quite like Wayne's World, but I also didn't see that until you showed it to me. Right. Wayne's World is stoner humor, Mm -hmm. which is totally my thing. This is like slapstick humor, which is not my thing. Right. So even though both of those movies are jokes and bits with, a very easy plot to keep them tied together. Mm-hmm. It's just the brand of humor is not totally my thing. I'm also not as much into the plot line of like grumpy person and then like person who doesn't even understand that that person doesn't like them. Right. Like that's not my favorite like shtick. Mm. You know, like in Wayne's world, Wayne and Garth are always friends. Yeah. And then they have like, they run into conflict, but it's never... Yeah, it's not like it's not like Wayne hates Garth and Garth is too dim to recognize that. Yeah. And Garth is just the heel. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not like super into that. Yeah. I mean, this this movie revels in the punch down humor. Yeah. Specifically aimed at Tommy. Yeah. Yeah. There are too many fat jokes in this movie. Yeah. But I have to talk about because there are there are just there are too many fat jokes in this movie. It has not aged well. But man, is fat guy in a little coat pretty funny? <laughs> it's, it's I mean that's the thing though is that Chris Farley is all in on it. And I think so. I was reflecting on that because I'm like there are fat jokes in the movie that it doesn't feel like he's in on in terms of of course Chris Farley is in the movie. He knows the script. He's agreed to be a part of the movie. But there's jokes that feel like he wasn't at the helm of making those jokes. Mm-hmm. Whereas, do you know the story of Fat Guy in a Little Coat? No. It is fucking hilarious. <laughs> Go on. So Chris Farley and David Spade shared an office at SNL. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, like their backs were to each other where their desks were. Oh, okay. And Chris Farley would tell David Spade he'd come up with like a good bit or a good like sketch and David Spade would turn around and he would be doing this and he like got him with it all the time where he'd be like I I thought of a really good new sketch and then David Spade would turn around and he'd be doing fat guy in a little coat no Chris Farley would turn around be doing it yes what did I say you said David Spade would turn around and David Spade would turn around and Chris Farley would be doing it and he like did like got him with that all the time see and that's shit that I did growing up like exactly that's like my kind of humor and so I think why that joke works for me. And that's like one of the only parts of the film I remember from when I swear I watched it like a decade ago is because it feels like it's Chris Farley's joke. Mm. It doesn't feel like it's at his expense or at the expense of like anyone who looks like him. It feels like he's like, yeah, this is who I am. And I put on your stupid little coat mm-hmm. and now I'm doing a silly little song and dance. But not all of the film feels like that. Yeah, there's I mean, there there's some of the fat jokes that 
I think are really good because it just feels like quippy David Spade. But there's some that just feel like they spent a little bit of time crafting this joke to be really cutting. And then it just has to like kind of like roll off of Chris Farley's back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, also on top of it, this has some very 90s language that doesn't hold up today. It's not consistent, but it pops up here or there. Yeah. It's kind of like makes you suck your teeth a little bit. Yeah. But on the whole, though, I I quite like the Chris Farley, David Spade dynamic. And this movie is very rooted in dad stuff, which is is. which is truly why I picked it is because. I, I wanted to dig into that a little bit because, yeah, it's focused around, as the synopsis says, Chris Farley, Tommy's dad passing away. And then the, like then they have to save this company. But something I didn't really think about until watching it this time was that there's dad stuff with David Spade's character as well. Mm-hmm. And that's almost rooted in the reason that the dynamic between Tommy mm-hmm. and Richard is so hostile. Mm hmm. So like watching that arc happen this time around was kind of like, oh, okay. There also seems to be part of the hostility that um, Richard has towards Tommy is that Richard, I don't think, comes from money the way Tommy does. And he's had to work for what he does. Mm -hmm. And Tommy hasn't, right? And on top of that, his dad loves him. Yes. Yeah. And he's going to just give him the company. Yeah. Even though like Richard feels like, what have you done to earn that or be capable of doing it well? Yeah. Do you know about the M&Ms? <laughs> no. So first of all, that was a bit I liked. There's yeah. a bit with M&Ms that I liked. The price sticker on the package of M&Ms, can mm-hmm. you guess? Like how much it was? Mm-hmm. Oh. Three ninety nine. Sixty nine cents. Oh, <laughs> that's really good. Like on purpose. That. Well, <laughs> Sure, I hope so. Uh, uh, I have a great piece of. Um, I'm bringing back the segment of IMDb trivia. Do you find it interesting or not? I love this. Okay, you ready? Yeah. This is a direct quote from IMDb trivia for Tommy Boy. When the woman at the motel pool removes her bikini bottoms, if you look closely, you can see the brown lining inside of them. Many people have actually mistaken this as either skid marks or a period stain. It's kind of interesting. It's, three of three people have found it interesting. Are you kind, number four? But it's just kind of like. I'm like, where are they getting this from? Yeah, though? like it's just kind of guesswork that somebody said. Like, this sounds like something somebody said once. And, and they then saw this the person movie. submitted it for IMDb trivia. <laughs> yeah. I think IMDb trivia is like Wikipedia. Like you Re- or I could just put stuff on it. Real loose. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm right in the middle on that one. But, you would not like me to add you as interested or disinterested no okay (laughs) nice did you have more of those no i did i do find this interesting and so i i didn't um check how many other people did but they so i guess uh the original script was not very good and it had to go through a lot of like rewrites Hmm. bonnie and terry didn't didn't really do a great job Hmm. uh, according to my research and so this was meant to be filmed in like the break between seasons of SNL. Right. But because of script pushbacks, it ended up starting during SNL. Oh, fuck. And David Spade and Chris Farley had to fly to and from Toronto and New York every weekend so they could be on SNL. Oh and that sounds God. awful. It does. Because from what I understand about SNL is that you're prepping all week. 
Yeah. And but, I guess Lauren Michaels usually doesn't allow for that. Like when you were on SNL, you were on SNL. Yeah. Um, but because of like the fiasco with how this happened, he like made an exception. But it sounds like it was exhausting. Well, I feel like at a certain point, if you're making a film, even though it's produced by Lauren Michaels, you're beholden to a studio. It's yeah. like, like Paramount or whoever is like, no, like we we've had this pushback, but you still owe us a movie. Yeah. So you have to get it done. That sounds so stressful. Yeah. At least they got to do it together. Cause it's like, I think, <laughs> I think that they had a lot of, <laughs> well, I also read that Chris Farley was sober during this film, mm. but then become, became overly um, reliant on coffee and that David Spade was very grouchy at him for lots of parts of the film. Um, also that bit in the film with like housekeeping. Yeah. David Spade would do that to Chris Farley at the hotel they were staying at while they were like filming this. I like how it's <laughs> just like we, me and Chris have all these bits together. Let's just throw them into it all, the... But it seems like they had a very um like sibling dynamic where like mm. they really got on each other's nerves at times and could like get real pissed at each other. Yeah. I, I didn't write it down, but I swear I read a, read a thing about like one of them walking off set or like they're having to be intervention because they were fighting so badly. Um, <laughs> that sounds, it sounds like a brother thing because then at the end of the day they would. I mean, I get it. I uh, like if you're sharing an office with this person who kind of just becomes your, your like writing partner, your comedy partner. And like they did multiple movies together. Yeah, I get it. Something I wanted to talk about. I found it. What? Can I read it? Yeah. Okay, so this is this is what happened. During filming, David Spade and Chris Farley, this is a quote from IMDb Trivia, got into a physical altercation on set. As they landed in Toronto on an early Sunday afternoon after doing SNL in New York, Farley was not feeling well, so he went up to his hotel room. Spade, not thinking anything of it, had called up Rob Lowe, and they went out to a bar for a drink. Farley found out the next morning and became very jealous, and throughout the morning would angrily stare at Spade and repeatedly ask him, how's Rob Lowe? Spade tried to explain and reminded him, quote, word of the wire was that you were sick, but Farley wasn't trying to hear it. Later that day, they were about to shoot a scene. Spade was sitting on the ground eating a tuna sandwich and going over his lines while Farley, smoking a cigarette, was still just staring and asking him, how's Rob Lowe? Spade was getting annoyed with him at this point. Farley then went over to Spade and stomped on his hand with the sandwich in it. Spade responded by throwing his Diet Coke on Farley, to which Farley threw Spade into a wall and pushed him down a small set of steps. Before things got too violent, the walkie-talkie called action. They quickly composed themselves and walked into the set. Then when it was time for Spade to say his line, he couldn't speak, so he stormed off set into his trailer. The director called cut. Farley went off to his trailer too. Spade refused to continue filming with Farley. Farley was so mad that he needed to hit someone, so he tackled the director's assistant, Skippy, who was the same weight and build as Farley, apparently. The pair would sometimes go for hours without talking to each other. They would talk to each other through the director. Sounds like there's a lot of drama on these SNL movies. <laughs> what other, Oh, was there drama? Remember? Oh, yeah, Mike, Mike Myers. Myers. Yeah. Right? All right. Well, inter that's interesting. That was a really long story. I can see why I didn't initially plan to tell it, but... No, how's rob low <laughs> man what a i want to know how rob low is and they freaking love making him the the snl bad guy of the week they should have made that a thing where he's in every snl movie yeah like a stan lee of the snl mm -hmm. movie universe yeah, yeah yeah it's not too late um i mean a couple things i want to say is that I, I love a road trip movie it's just a really simple device granted a lot of the comedies that focus around that that i used to like 
might not hold up. I mean, there's this, there's Dumb and Dumber, there's Due Date. I I, I don't yeah. I don't think that those stand the test of time as well. But I've never seen Dumb and Dumber. I always think that they're. Kind of, I always really liked them when I was younger. But what I want to talk about is kind of the sweetness that exists in the side of this movie, specifically the the dynamic between Tommy and Michelle. I really I really liked that there was just this sense of care and understanding and patience with each other. Like Michelle was never judgmental of Tommy and she seemed truly interested in him and he, he like they just spoke with this kindness to each other. And I really liked that throughout the film. Yeah, I mean, considering I don't think you at all picked this in any way to have it connected to Valentine's Day, I actually do think the dynamic between Tommy and Michelle is like what most of us would want in a relationship. Like there seems to be a mutual respect, a mutual sweetness, love the scene where she yells at the boys. Yeah. <laughs> like um and most and I think most of us wouldn't want what Bo Derek's got going on. Good lord. She makes me feel real icky in this movie. Yeah. Like ugh. she's just she's yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was happy to revisit this. I don't, I, I think we're in agreement. like this isn't uh, our favorite thing we've ever seen. Probably won't revisit it a ton, if at all. But how did it make you feel? I, it did have me like a rooting for Tommy throughout. Yeah. Like he was a likable enough character that I wanted him to succeed. Mm -hmm. But to the point you just made, I'm really not interested in ever watching it again. Yeah. 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 You? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing I was kind of struck with this time is that I was charmed by Chris Farley's subtle range with Tommy. Like the the way that he could definitely play up the the idiot side of things, but there is that sweetness and there is that sort of anger and sadness and it was all played with a lot of subtlety. Yeah, and there's some like Waymond Wang moments where it seems like he suggests it's not that I don't understand, it's that I choose to be like this. Mm. Right? That he's not just like dim. Yeah. Like he's like, no, I just like I like having a good time. Yeah, and he understands his quote unquote weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So as Eclectic Week continues, it was Valentine's Day. We were looking for something Real sweet, real nice and romantic. Oh, yes. We love nice romantic films. Yeah. So naturally, we chose the 1981 horror film, My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> naturally. Uh, it was directed by George Mahalka, written by Stephen A. Miller and John Beard. Beard? Beard. Um, it stars Paul Kelman as TJ, Lori Halliott. Allier as Sarah, Neil Affleck as Axel, Keith Knight as Hollis, and Cynthia Dale as Patty. Oh, as well as Helene Udi as Sylvia. A lot of people. A lot of folks. Um, a synopsis. A decades-old folktale surrounding a deranged murderer killing those who celebrate Valentine's Day turns out to be true to legend when a group defies the killer's order and people start turning up dead. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's it. That is the synopsis. Oh, it's like so stupid, but so awesome. Okay. Uh, what do you <laughs> think of My Bloody Valentine? So neither of us had seen this. Apparently you've seen the remake. I In don't, 3D. I don't know how similar they are. We watched a trailer for it after we finished this, and I was like, yeah, pass on that one. Yeah, it's real poo-poo. Um, 
I don't know why there aren't more Valentine's Day horror movies because I feel like that combo is real like rife with potential. Just like passion and heat. Yeah. And, and desire that can lead to freaking axe murders. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like, this is just pure slasher film. And I am, you and I love horror movies. Unless this is your first time ever listening to the show, I think you get that you, the listener, gets that we love horror movies. Hmm. But I particularly like slasher movies. Like that is mm-hmm. an area of horror that I particularly like. Um, and I like when they're silly. Mm-hmm. This film knows that it's silly. Oh, yeah. And so when there's a slasher film that's just like, I'm just going to be a conventional slasher. I'm going to follow the formula and we're going to have fun with it. I- I'm happy. Yeah. Did it do anything more for me than that? No. Did I like what it did? Yes. Yeah. I mean, if we're looking at comparing to other holiday focused horror movies, I mean, a gold standard is like Black Christmas compared to yeah. like a Silent Night, Deadly Night. This yeah. leans more Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yes, we're taking the holiday, using it as like a silly point to make a formulaic slasher film. Whereas mm-hmm. Black Christmas is like, I am making a film and it happens to be set at Christmas and it happens to be a horror film. We're going to do something more with that. Mm-hmm. You need both. Yeah. I need Black Christmas and Silent Night, Deadly Night. But you know, like you said, there is a Black Christmas potential va- Valentine's Day themed horror movie that should be made. I'm into it. I would really like to watch that. I, I think we saw this, um, some clips from it. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But um, AMC has Eli Roth's History of Horror. It, it, it's been canceled, but I think there was three seasons. And I think they did an episode on holiday films, like holiday horror films. Mm, maybe, yeah. Um, and this was like featured. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it's like one of Eli Roth and Quentin Tarantino. Not that I particularly like him, but one of their like favorite horror films. And then that's not surprising when you look at like Eli Roth's Thanksgiving trailer <laughs> right. for um for Grindhouse, which I believe is getting made into a feature film. I think they've been saying that for years. No, I think it's like actually happening now. I think it is. Don't take this from me. I mean, I'll probably go see it because how many Thanksgiving? Patrick Dempsey's going to be in it. (laughs) Yeah, Thanksgiving. Eli Roth finally carving up Grindhouse spinoff, January 7th, 2023. So, yes. The movie that I really want of all those Grindhouse trailers is Don't from Edgar Wright. (laughs) (laughs) That feels like... um, we didn't go see it when it was playing at Metro and we haven't seen it, but that like 60s movie, The Innocence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the dead ever come back to possess the living? <laughs> <laughs> Love that shit. But yeah, I'm with you. Like coming into this, I was just kind of prepared for a romp. Like I was totally ready for this to just be like a schlock fest and just have lots of fun with this. And I mean, it, it kind of delivered. What I was impressed with and surprised by is like some of the kills. Yeah, because they don't have to. They don't have to go that hard with them, and and it did. Like turn the camera, and it's like and it and it still would have been screen. still would have been fun. I still would have liked it, but there were some like pretty damn good kills in this. And they looked the gore and the practical effects that went into them, real good. Yeah, they looked really good for like what this film clearly was, which I don't think was like a huge budget film. 
Do you know where it was filmed? Mm, yeah. Canada. Do you know where? Is it in, is it in Ontario? It was in Nova Scotia. I was going to say, like, if it wasn't in Ontario, it had like East Coast vibes. Yeah, it was in, it was in, in a mine in Sydney, Nova Scotia. The irony of this, I just love this so much. So this like little dinky town in Nova Scotia, they pick this as a filming location because there's this old mine that's not being used anymore that looks exactly how they want it to look. The locals find out this has been picked. And so they pay $50,000 of the city's money to paint and clean the mine. But the crew, like the filmmakers picked it because it looked ramshackle. Yeah. So then they had to put $75,000 of the film's budget into returning it to the way it originally looked. What? <laughs> it's so stupid. I, I, but I, I think that is so charmingly Canadian of like, ooh, our mind's a little messy. We got that for you. <laughs> It's like that, um, the gift of the Magi, you know, that story with like, <laughs> I use, the, I use this as an example a lot when I'm teaching. It's like the husband and the wife and they're struggling to buy each other Christmas gifts. They don't have a lot of money and he, uh, he loves his like watch, but he doesn't have a chain and it's like his favorite thing. And she has this beautiful long hair and he sells his watch to get her a hairbrush and she cuts her hair and sells it to buy him a chain. Uh, classic. Like that. Like they were like, oh, well. <laughs> so everybody's out money. <laughs> I love it. I, think I just love that story. I think that's so funny. I'm just like, oh, we just got to clean up the mine before the production crew gets here. And then the crew shows up and they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, we, we wanted it to look the way it looked. <laughs> so speaking of the mine, that is a, that's great. It's a yeah. great set. Like it has some descent vibes without getting too like, I'm stuck in a cavern, but mm-hmm. it like gives you that like icky, claustrophobic feeling. Mm-hmm. The outfit that like the killer is wearing is like perfectly eerie and also logical within the film. It's such a weird pairing, like this idea of a deranged mine worker on Valentine's Day. Tying that into Valentine's Day. But the story is pretty great of like how he became the deranged killer. I love yeah. it. Oh yeah, it's so funny and it's played up so hamily. It's it's great. Like and this whole movie is about don't have a Valentine's Day dance or else. Well, and it's so funny the fucking persistence of some of the people in this movie of no, we're having the dance. Have you ever wanted to have a dance that badly? A d- dance slash party? Never. <laughs> Never. I'm like, is it raining? Probably should cancel the party because I don't want to go. Oh my god! Cool, uh, cool bit of trivia. So the film starts on Thursday, February twelfth, and Valentine's Day is on Saturday, February fourteenth. The film tells us this. Yeah. So what's in between? Shit, Friday the thirteenth, baby. baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Like it never says Friday the thirteenth on screen. That's funny. But it like what a little like what a little great a little tip of the cap. Yeah, I love that. That's really awesome. Um. What did you think of the song at the end of the movie? The Ballad of Harry Warden. It was, it was, it was something. It was a choice. It was good. It was supposed to be a hit sing- single to sell on vinyl record. Oh. But they ran out of budget to, to do that. Listen. Because they had to repair the mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Just like that guy. What's his name? The artist? What Who did the song? 
I don't know. Oh, but what's the name of the song? The Ballad of Harry Warden. Man, they're just like, oh, we're going to cash it on that Harry Warden single. It's going to be great. Everybody's going to love it. Yeah. It's like it's on, it's never going to exist beyond the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we sang along with it. We had ourselves a little sing along. It's true. We really, we, we, we had a good time. It's true. I did think like the characters were so forgettable. There's so many people in this. And I'm like, I could not keep track of their names or who they were dating. But the kills were awesome. Yeah. Like there's so many dinguses in this that you're just like, yeah. And they're like, oh, the freaking dance. Make the dance happen. I want to have a dance. I, wanna have a, I just want to have a dance, guys. We haven't had a Valentine's Day dance our whole lives. Oh my God. So unfair. Have a dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was... Um, it was fun. It was just really fun. And I was just excited from kill to kill for you, it to escalate. You think you'd watch it again? I think I would. I I would happily watch this every Valentine's Day. Nice. They did play it at Metro the Sunday before Valentine's Day. But after our really crap experience uh, with the Outwaters, I just felt like this is one that maybe people would be. Just watch a horror movie at home. But yeah. I do think now that I've seen it and I know how goofy it is, I would kind of be okay if seeing it in the theater if people yes. were laughing and talking and not talking disrespectfully, but like being like hot dogs. Yeah. You know, stuff just, like that. Just kind of whooping it up. Yeah. But I but I didn't want that for the first time seeing it. Yeah. 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 No, you're right. Uh, yeah. Would you rewatch it? Yep. I'd, I would, to quote one Elliot Cuss, happily watch it every Valentine's Day. Ooh. How'd it make you feel? It made me just quite simply feel along for the silly slasher holiday fun. It's what it wanted to do. Yeah. That's what it did. I was happy. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. Uh, yeah. For me, very simply, I was just satisfied with what it is. <laughs> and happily so. Yeah. This isn't one like if you don't like slasher movies, I wouldn't be like, oh, God, you got to see yeah. My Bloody Valentine 1981. You got to. Yeah. But if you like slasher films... You do gotta. Yeah. I And I'm with you. More holiday-based slasher films, please. And bring in more Valentine's Day ones. I'm ready. Yeah. Any other holidays that you think are are worthy of a slasher or movie counterpart? I mean, Thanksgiving Probably Family great. Day. It's coming up this week. Father's Day. Oh, there's got to be one. Oh, well, no. I'm thinking The Stepfather. You've seen that? No. It has a guy from Nip Tuck in it. The newer one, anyway. Oh, there's an older one. Yeah. Anyway. Next movie. Ooh, man. We, we are going in so many different directions. Yeah, I keep forgetting what we watched. <laughs> and as we oh. keep going, I'm like, Jesus, what a week. So I took this out from the library. I've been wanting to watch it for a long time, but it isn't on any of the streaming sites that we have. Um, I heard good things about it. It's on the Letterboxd Top 250, Narrative Films. I have a colleague and mentor who like highly recommended it and has kind of mentioned it a few times. So I just decided this was the week. Uh, and I picked the 2012 drama film, The Hunt. It's directed and written by Thomas Vinterberg and it stars uh, Mads Mikkelsen as Lucas, Thomas Bo Larson as Theo, Annika Wiederkop as Clara, Lars Vogelstrom as Marcus and Susie Gold as Grete. Uh, the synopsis. A teacher lives a lonely life, all the while struggling over his son's custody. His life slowly gets better as he finds love and receives good news, but his new luck is about to be brutally shattered by an innocent little lie. What do you think of The Hunt? 
Okay, before we get into the meat and potatoes of it all, Kylie gave me the business about saying meat and potatoes a couple times when we were talking with Rich O'Coin. It makes me feel weird. Because <laughs> you're vegetarian? No, I maybe, maybe. Whenever like, I catch myself when I'm teaching, when I say, okay, let's get to the meat of it, I'm like, what am I saying about, like, I'm saying that meat is more valuable in a meal. Well, it's like, the, yeah, it's the main course. It's not the appetizers, not the tapas. <laughs> but we don't eat meat. <laughs> uh, let's get down to the vegetarian seitan <laughs> and potatoes of this. Let's get to the uh, deep fried tofu and <laughs> edamame beans. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you need to find another way to say that. I think I just need to stop because I think I've been saying it at work too. And it's, it's now that you called me on it, I'm like, what the fuck? Why am I saying meat and potatoes all the time? Why do I want to just get to the meat and potatoes? Where's the salad? Um, well, first off, I just want to say that I can, I think I can speak for both of us when I say we love Mads Mikkelsen. I really quite do. Yes. I, I, I feel like he's been in a lot of good stuff and I am not above trying to make him our most watched actor of 2023. I feel like I'd want to watch more of like his Danish work. Yes. Like Love I'm not I'm not all like which which James Bond is he in? Casino Royale. And he's great in it. I've seen I've seen that. Yeah, you have. I didn't like it. Ah, I know. But he's great in that. Love him in Hannibal. In yeah, I Incroyable. <laughs> trying to be are you just like putting on different personas to see which one gets like a thumbs up like the the first one where you're like oh i like that guy (laughs) meat and potatoes in croyab um he is in fact in croyab in hannibal i really 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 like hannibal i think it's a really fantastic show and he had his work cut out for him portraying a different version of Hannibal Lecter when Anthony Hopkins is so known for that. Mm -hmm. And he did such a fantastic job. I want to rewatch that show. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, I quite like Mads Mikkelsen. I, I I think he picks interesting projects. Yeah. I mean, we haven't watched anything really bad that he's done. Like I don't like Casino Royale. It's not a bad movie. It's just not my kind of movie. Do you know who, do you know where I think he would have been really good? And I understand that you probably don't want a well-known actor, but I think he would have been really good as the dad, like the cop dad in Dark. Yeah. Yeah, that was German though. Yeah, but I could see him playing. Yeah. Just the tone of the show feels yeah. like something right up Mads Mikkelsen's alley. He is in, he replaced Johnny Depp in those oh, fantastic yeah. Beast Him movies. as Grindelwald? Great choice. But we just, we stopped. We're yeah. done. We're done with anything new Harry Potter. Yeah, because of, she who will not be named. Yeah. Poop. They who will not be named just to tick her off a little bit. <laughs> um, so love, love him. And he's excellent in this. I really love watching him work. That being said, I had some, com- I have complicated feelings about movies that focus on these kinds of topics and themes. Yeah, me too. It's really hard to navigate them. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean the, the pacing and the setup of this movie, the execution as a whole is really good. And Mads Mikkelsen is amazing in it. Yeah. Like amazing. It's really hard to watch what happens to him, which is what also gives me those complicated feelings because I'm like, because this film does such a good job, I like, I just, I don't think this film is trying to be like a cancel culture's bad. Like 
I actually think the film is so much more complex and nuanced than that. Yeah. Um, and I think we watched a couple interviews afterwards with Matt Spiegelson and Thomas Vinterberg and the way that they talked about it showed a deep understanding of the reality and the complexity of all of this. I think it was um, Mads Mikkelsen said, well, there certainly are times where there's false accusations and, and there certainly are times when children lie. Most of the time they're not like, like yeah. they're very aware of that. And I think the film is very aware of that. Mm-hmm. But then where I start feeling complicated is how a person could wield this film. Yes. Against what the film is actually trying to do. And yeah. because Mads Mikkelsen is so damn good in it, it would be fairly easy for someone to wield this film and say, look what can happen to a person. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we weren't immune to the things it was doing. I mean, we started getting frustrating for the reasons the movie wanted us to start getting frustrated. And yet the film, I don't think ever denigrates anyone. I think it suggests that the way that everyone in in the film reacts is quite natural. Mm hmm. Um, I think where the film is actually pointing its critique is at like overreaction yeah, or like moving too fast through things. Well, it's, it's the way that it all kind of starts. Like the, the catalyst of it all is all set in wanting to do the right thing. Exactly. And that is admirable. Yeah. And is actually, in fact, exactly what should be done because to not... When a child says something like the child in this film says, if an adult does not look into that, they are failing. Yeah. But then how it's looked into. And the people involved in looking into yeah, it. That's where it starts to um, to just blow out of control, blow out of control. Well, and like the thing that as soon as the, the frustrations I started mentioning and so these things that we're talking about start coming up, it begins for me. I begin this wrestle inside of my head to shift perspectives. And you even challenged me on it. Like where I'm just like, what the fuck with this and this and this. And then you're like, but if you were on the other side, how would I respond? And I'm like, probably similar in some of these Mm -hmm. situations. Yeah. Like it's, it, it's such an interesting exploration of seeing the faults and the cracks and mismanagement of the, of the events caused by these people. But it's, it's such a challenging movie. It is bleak. It is. It was funny because yeah. I said to you, I actually didn't know what this film was about. I we, We've seen another round and really liked it, which Thomas Vinterberg made and Mads Mikkelsen is in. We love Mads and Hannibal. Um, I'd heard good things about this movie, but I didn't actually know what it was about. I did quickly look at like what lists it's on on Letterboxd. Um, and I thought that I saw that it was on um, You're Not the Same Person Once This Film Is Over, which it isn't. But then halfway through the movie, I was like, oh, it's on the world is hell, hopeless cinema. (laughs) Which is (laughs) kind of different, tonally. It is. I think that, I think a film could potentially be on both. Yeah. And I think there's a way that this film does fit both, but it certainly more accurately fits the world is hell, hopeless cinema. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it is bleak. Like, it's just, it's not even, it's not even icky. It's just heavy. Yeah. It's just sucky. It's just sucky. It just is not. It's not fun. This is not a fun movie. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, I mean, I said, like, 
when I was putting my notes together, it has an ick factor, but it it goes for deeper than that. Like it is this, it's a heavy ick. And it's interesting because um, we watched a little like 10 minute thing that was on the DVD because we got the DVD from the library. So we had some special features. That's kind of fun. For those of you that don't know, a DVD is a disc. that <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not about to mansplain DVDs. <laughs> Go on. I feel like your initial intention with that is just that most of us don't use DVDs. Anymore. This is another guy. This is another persona I'm trying to. Oh, I, just, yeah. I actually kind of thought that one was funny. So. Oh, oh, yeah. They all keep I liked over. that better than meat and potatoes or in crayob guy. So, you all know. Right, all right. I'm ready to do <laughs> DVD mansplainer guy. <laughs> guy who um, mansplains DVDs. That's going to be your whole persona moving forward. Oh. <gasps> But when we were watching this little featurette, um, which was an interview with Mads Mikkelsen and Thomas Vinterberg, Mads said that he sees this as a film about love. Mm -hmm. And he said it's a film about how love can be such a powerful force that it like stops us from seeing reality and it pushes us to extremes. And when he said that, I was like, that is exactly what Craig Mazin keeps saying about The Last of Us. Oh, right. In yeah. all of the The Last of Us podcast episodes, he keeps saying that The Last of Us is about love, but about how love can actually be a force that causes us to do really unspeakable things. Yeah. And that even though love is this thing that we... So, so just thought of this. Mm. Actually very appropriate for Valentine's Day week. All of the films have been. Mm-hmm secret valentine's day pockets in each of the films at least in the sense of like when you have a love for somebody whether that's a romantic love a familial love a parental love a protective love there's so many different kinds of love what love can do or cause you to do in the name of love we often think if you've done it in the name of love there's no critiquing it yeah and i think both the last of us and this film in very different ways are looking at when is that something that we actually do have a right to critique? Yeah. When is it not okay to use love as an excuse for not thinking, for being violent, for whatever it might be? Mm-hmm. Right? It's really, it's. Th- I think that's a really heavy and important thing to explore. Yeah. No, totally. And it leads to some of my favorite kind of storytelling. Um, the Last of Us is. I was thinking best. though. While you were talking, I mean, Pedro is incredible. I love Pedro Pascal and what he's doing with the character of Joel. But I'm starting to like picture like, what if Mads was Joel? I think he could have been a good Joel. I agree. But I think that he would have struggled with trying to do a Southern accent. So that's probably why they didn't pick him. I mean, Pedro's accent doesn't stick very Southern very often. No. <laughs> which is every, fine. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> Joel's supposed to sound like. Oh, yeah. It's just the Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's just fine. I'm fine with it slipping. Um, I think Pedro was the right I think choice. It, I agree. Um, I think Pedro Pascal has a a Logan Hugh Jackman, but a softer Logan Hugh Jackman. Yeah, and whereas Mads would be sharper, right? Like he does yeah. such a good job of playing characters that that lean to. Like I think if Mads Mikkelsen was Joel, we'd be we would maybe not feel the warmth as much mm-hmm. or maybe he, maybe we would i don't know he he's just played like, so many characters where he's a little bit colder yeah he has a colder demeanor yeah um i, I feel i feel the accent thing i feel like at one point they've just been like fuck it mads don't worry about it just go yeah we'll just have a danish 
you'll just be Danish Joel. It'll Danish be okay. Joel. But I do think he could have been a, a good choice for that. I, I, I am so... Now, somehow we've just become talking about The Last of Us. We've had a couple people uh, uh, tell us that they'd like us to do a deep dive on the first season of The Last of Us when it's um, when it's done. And we we really don't get into TV in the show proper. But if you would like us to do a deep dive of The Last of, of Us when it's over, please send us a DM and let us know because we will if people are interested. But we won't if people aren't. Yeah. Bad dad, dad, rad dad. Yeah. We're probably going to do it anyway because the show fucking rocks. So, <laughs> but <laughs> we always end up talking about it anyway. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actively having to tell myself, stop talking about it. This is about the hunt. It's not about The Last of Us. Um, one thing I was thinking about too at the end of this movie is leading up to the ending, I think both, both of us were thinking that it was going to end one way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way we thought it was going to end, ended up being an alternate ending that we watched after the fact. But I said, even before we watched the alternate ending, the the true ending of the film is more upsetting than the alt ending that we thought was going to happen. I do. I think. So this film was very difficult to watch. It's very difficult to think about it. Navigating how I think about it is difficult. I think that tends to mean it's probably an important film. Yeah. Because if we feel uncomfortable, that's asking us to to think more complexly right um yeah i thought this was one of the strongest endings of a film i've ever seen like for what it what it does to forward what the film is exploring is so phenomenal and i think if it had ended the way that we had predicted it would and then how the alternate ending is it would have fundamentally changed the thematics of the movie that's just it is i feel like the alternate ending speaks to what we kind of already know about humanity, but the true ending speaks to the, the, the tr- like it's almost the deeper, the more inten- insidious. Yeah. And like the, the deeper intentions of that insidiousness mm-hmm. in humanity. And that is deep and, and that dark. Makes it the world is hell. Hopeless cinema. Yeah. It's brilliant. The ending of this movie. This is one of those ones where I'm like, the movie is really good. I don't know that I feel good about recommending it to anyone, nor do I know if I ever want to watch it again. I think but it was I, a really good movie. Yeah, like I don't want to watch this all the time. I want to rewatch it now having seen it because mm. I feel like I found in my head I was kind of going back because this movie does a really great job of kind of throwing in little throwaway bits leading up to kind of the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. But knowing how everything shakes out, going back and re-examining all of those things leading up to that incident, mm-hmm. um, I'd be really curious to re-explore it. Um, it also made me want to watch another round again because I remember feeling yeah similar, but uh, the crux of another round isn't quite something so socially taboo as this is. Um, not even taboo, but just like socially reviled as this is. Yeah. And so, but I remember another round making me feel pretty heavy. Yeah. And like really complicated. And and Mads is fantastic in that too. So it made me want to watch that again. Yeah. Overall, how did the hunt make you feel? Fully engaged and consistently challenged. Nice. Yeah. How about you? It just made me feel a friggin' deep weight in my stomach from start to finish. Mm, yeah. It's it's a tough one to recommend, 
but if what we've said is intriguing at all, maybe you should check it out. <laughs> and, it, and it is one that maybe we've tried not to speak too directly to what the film is about, but it might be one to look a little bit more into what it's about before you decide to watch it. Yes, it is bleak. Because I didn't know what it was about, and then I was like, oh. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, once you just kind of start feeling where things are going, you're like, oh. oh, oh. Yeah. Grimace emoji. Grimace emoji. Hey, uh, last movie of the week. This was not planned, but oh my goodness. So cool. (laughs) This is another thing you're trying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you call this this version of you? This is guy who gets overexcited about his own decisions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. So cool. Whoa, like we didn't plan it. But or maybe it's guy that get, guy that gets overexcited about things that have already happened. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! I saw this. <laughs> Not as into this guy. I'm still mostly into DVD mansplainer. Yeah, all right. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll take it back. <laughs> um. Yeah. So they re-released the 2000 action adventure drama Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon into the theaters, and it was supposed to be playing at Metro Cinema a few weeks out, but it was playing at like nine 30 on a Thursday. And when you say supposed to, it is going to it be is. playing at Metro. It, we were supposed to maybe go see it, but we were very hesitant to do that. Cause typically when that happens weekdays, you know, we're a little bit more tired. Can't give movies like this that we want to give an honest and an honest viewing of. Yeah. I'm not super keen at being out till midnight and having to work the next day. Yeah. So this was great. Like Cineplex got it. And it was playing at a decent time, so we're like, let's do it. We would have rather to go. We would rather have gone to Metro. And as of this, you listening to this, it'll be playing at Metro in a week or so. Yeah. So you should go see it at Metro if you live in the Edmonton area. If you're not a big old baby like us, and you can stay up till midnight. Yeah. You should do it. Yeah. Okay. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It was directed by Ang Lee, written by Hui Ling Wong. James Shimus and Kuo Jun Sai. They wrote the screenplay, but it's based on a book. I did not know this was based on a book by Du Lu Wang. Uh, it stars Chow Young Fat as Master Li Mu Bai, Michelle Yeoh, the incomparable Michelle Yeoh, Yushu Lin, and uh, Zi Zhang as Jen, as well as Pei Pei Chang as Jade Fox. The synopsis is. A young Chinese warrior steals a sword from a famed swordsman and then escapes into a world of romantic adventure with a mysterious man in the frontier of the nation. Yep. This was our first time ever seeing this. Yeah, and people's minds were blown. We put it on Instagram and we got more messages than we normally do being like, really? First time? What did you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you think? Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Okay, so when you said you wanted to go see this, impromptu on a Saturday. I was like, uh Because it's like action, adventure, romance. martial arts. And I'm not super into action movies typically, but here was part of the problem. So this has been out since we were 10 years old. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought that this was like an a martial arts movie where all of the characters speak English, but it's supposed to be in China So kind of like the reader where it's like in Germany and the people are German and it's English actors, like British actors speaking English in a German accent. I hate that. I'm like, just make a German movie. 
And I feel specifically with this, I feel like this kind of spawned a bunch of movies like, like that. that. Yeah. And so for some reason, I just had it in my head that that's what it was. And that even at like 12, 13, 14, I was not interested in movies like that. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you know this, but I've always been pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but a DVD is. <laughs> <laughs> but suffice it to say, without having too much of an ego, even in junior high, like I didn't want to watch dubbed versions or remakes of things where there was an international version. Right. I would seek out, like if I saw The Ring and then realized The Ring was based on Ringu, I sought out Ringu. I watched Ringu when I was 13 because... That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I just, I was wrong about this. I, I didn't understand what it was. Yeah. And I'm exact same boat as you. I just thought it was some big budget, appropriative, wouldn't have had the language for that around this time. Yeah. But that's what I, that's what I thought. And I didn't even know that that wasn't what it was until like yesterday when I looked it up, when you were like, we should go see it. So then I was like, okay, well, I'm more on board, but I still just like don't love action films. Holy shit, is this movie good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, well, like I said, um, I'm I'm totally on the same page as you as to what I thought this was. And the main driving factor for me wanting to see this was, I mean, A, it was in the theater, so what a great chance to see it for the first time. But also Michelle Yeoh is the best. just on the radar yeah. and has been awesome. So I wanted to see her. So those are the two driving factors yeah. of why I wanted to go see this. Yeah. It it is awesome. I mean, another thing I remember about when it first came out is that it was coming out the year after the Matrix came out, so it's kind of riding like hot off the tails of like kung fu martial arts, and like and it's and it's doing something cool with like wire work, and it's it's kind of ingenuitive. So so I wanna I wanna talk about this a little bit because I really like the Matrix. Mm-hmm. My older sister, I have two older sisters, my one who's three years older than me, The Matrix was like her favorite movie, came out when I was nine and she was 12 and she loved it so much. Like she had the blockbuster cardboard cutout of it, like friggin' huge, like as tall as a human uh-huh. and it has like Neo Morpheus and Trinity on it mm-hmm. and then like, like a skyscape, I think that was in her basement. Like she was obsessed with it. And so I I really liked it, but I never was really able to love it. She also liked Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Right. Um, But I do really like The Matrix, and I really liked the action sequences in this, but typically I really don't like action sequences and I get so bored. What is different about these? And they were choreographed, the the action sequences were choreographed by the same person for The Matrix and for this. Oh, shit. Uh, His name is Wu Ping Yun, and I can see the similarities. So it's not just following along with the matrix there was a person who successfully did really great work in the matrix and was hired to do this Mm. why do you think it is that i i like these and and am compelled and like would watch again the action sequences in this and the matrix and i'm sure some other things but like i get so bored in game of thrones i get so bored in marvel movies i get so bored in lord of the rings let me attempt to maybe pinpoint it i would love that i'm looking for some help so i think that the thing that exists between the Matrix and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I also, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I also like like the fight scene in Daredevil or like in Old Boy. Right. So I think it's something about playing with time. 
So in the matrix, it's about slowing down time and the, the idea of they're also moving very fast and kinetically. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's even amplified even more in crouching tiger, hidden Mm -hmm. dragon where all of the martial arts are very fast Mm -hmm. and it's filmed in a way to emphasize how fast it is. And then another thing that emphasizes that is the wire work that I mentioned Mm -hmm. where it becomes very dreamlike. Mm -hmm. Like a a lot of people talk about, this is just a bit of a a tangent, but a lot of people talk about having flying dreams when they were younger. These are the kinds of dreams I had. I was never flying, but I could, I could jump and like float really high. So like Tanuki Mario. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> but like that those were the dream where like all of a sudden I'm just super high in the sky. And that's what this was like. I'm like, oh man. Like it it <laughs> seems otherworldly. Yeah. But it interrupts this very fast paced. So is fighting. it that there's a, a bit of surreality to the action sequences in this? But that isn't there in like Daredevil and Old Boy. So I agree with you. I think there's something about but dare- time and pace and the play and the like juxtaposing of it. But I'll, I'll just add like, I feel like there's a similarity between Crouching Tiger and The Matrix in terms of the Kung Fu style, obviously, because it's choreographed by the same person. But that that idea of time slowing and speeding up, whereas in Old Boy and Daredevil, I think that there's a rawness that exists mm. in that one where it just feels like. You can you can feel them starting to get tired and getting worn down, but they're still kicking ass and finding finding innovative ways to continue kicking ass where they can exert less energy. I also think um, something that maybe all of those have in common and some other like fight sequences that I've enjoyed are when it's grounded in character. Yeah. Like it's actually relevant to the plot and it's not just and now cue fight scene. And that we're following one person or like two people and the fight is not like a giant battle. Yeah, it's not a big CGI Marvel madness final act. Yeah, where there's like everyone's fighting and it's just so chaotic. But we're like, like I think Old Boy and Daredevil have those similar sequences where like there's really interesting camera work happening too. Yes. Um, And and then what all of these I think have in common is they're almost dance-like. Yeah. Whereas those other fight scenes just feel like, okay, you stand here, swing a sword, and then we'll throw in a bunch of CGI guys later. Yeah. like, And there'll just be a bunch of like roaring and screaming and crashing and this and that. Whereas these feel, um, I had a friend, uh, we had a friend message us who was like, oh my goodness, you like you saw Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon for the first time. What did you think of it? And they said that that first fight sequence, which after it happened, I leaned over to you and I said that was so cool (laughs) yeah and I was in I was all in from that point on but uh, our friend said the first uh, fight sequence is timed to the music Mm. and it's like so it is it does have this like dance like feeling and in fact uh, Zihi Zhang didn't get trained in martial arts she just used her dance training as the basis for what she did in the film and so I think there's a degree to which when there's like a fluidity and an interesting camera work and it's grounded in character and watching it is like watching dance, mm-hmm. watching like what the human body can do as opposed to just like a fight scene in a movie. Well, how do you feel about the fight scenes in Everything Everywhere? I like them. Same kind I of, like them a lot. Same kind of And way. I like, you know, in Everything Everywhere, I like the juxtaposition of these really interesting martial arts fight scenes with fanny packs and 
like, trophies, trophies. And yeah, you know, like when you're bringing in these like everyday objects into these like high stakes, really impressive fight scenes. Mm-hmm. I, I like what it's doing there. But I think when it just reads as just a typical fight scene, I I, I kind of think, oh, I've seen this before and I get a little sleepy. Yeah. And this film was not like that. I loved every single action sequence in this except for maybe the one in the desert where like all the guys are on horses. Yeah. That was like the one I didn't care for, which was more like a typical fight scene where I get bored. Or it's just a lot of bodies. I'll be like, rah! Well, it's kind of where the Matrix trilogy goes. Yeah, and I only really like the first one. Yeah. So. Um, I was actually, I actually felt like there wasn't a lot of action in this. But when it's there. It's really good. Well, I'll have you know that the first draft of the script This is a quote from the first draft of the script. You will note in the script that none of the fight scenes are described, and I will just inform you now that they will be the greatest fight scenes ever in the history of cinema, period. (laughs) That's somebody whose character is guy that mansplays (laughs) (laughs) epic fight scenes. But But they're really good sequences. And I think by having them not be the entire film, A, I liked the movie because it actually had plot and purpose and B because you're not just like fight scene after fight scene after fight scene after fight scene the moments matter more well that's just it because I think you said the fight scenes are character driven it's not just like okay now insert good guy versus bad guy it's like something is trying to be achieved and there's an obstacle therefore insinuating insinuating no therefore creating the conflict that creates the fight scene. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so much better. Also, what I didn't know about this film, because I have a tendency to my brain, and I think there's a validity to my brain doing this, action movie equals white guy movie. Yeah. Action movie equals movie about men. Mm-hmm. This movie is all about women. Just women kicking ass. Like, even though, like... um. Chow Yun-Fat is an important character. His character is not the focus of this film. I actually think the focus of this film is Yushui Len, Jen, and Jade Fox. And I think it's, I think this film, I am interested in watching it again, knowing where it goes, because I think this film is ultimately about like the expectations placed on women and how like generations of women either defy or acquiesce to those and then how they then expect things of the women who come after them based on the choices they have made. Yeah. And that is what this film is about. Yeah. And that, like we talked about with Rafiki, while this film is, although Ang Lee has talked about this as like a fantasy China, like it's not actually historically accurate and he acknowledges that it's, Mm -hmm. it's much more of like a, it, it does feel fantasy in a sense or like, like magical, like Arthurian. Right. Yeah. Um, so while it is like it's it while it's grounded in this like Asian traditions, Asian culture, there is something so universally accessible about how women are treated socially and the expectations placed on them by the women who came before them based on the choices that they have made within that culture that continues to exist. Yeah. And I freaking loved that. Well, I, like I loved the women in this. I loved their characters, I loved their arcs, and I cared about the story. Well, and I think another thing, another layer of that that lends itself into the action is the representation of weapons, a specific weapon, the the sword mentioned in the synopsis, as this thing that 
the the warrior that steals it, what that represents to them, mm-hmm. and what take having it taken away from them would mean, mm-hmm. and just to assign that level of depth to a weapon mm-hmm. is symbolism, baby. Oh, is really really good. Yeah, I was just like blown away by how I actually deeply, deeply cared about the plot of the film and the characters mm-hmm. and actually really liked the sequences. And it is. This movie is an action adventure romance. It is. Yeah. And I really liked it. Yeah. I told my students the other day that I only like romance films if they're weird, sad, or gay. <laughs> I don't know how you would classify this one. <laughs> yeah. And then I had to tell them that's not true because I like Dirty Dancing. Um. Some trivia? Hit me with it. Do you know uh, what this won at the Academy Awards? Choreography? It did. It, well, it won Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography. Is, is choreography? A, a, I don't think so. Sorry, go on. So I think Art Direction and Cinematography are kind of covering that. Uh, best Art Direction, Best cinemato- Cinematography, Best Score, and Best Foreign Language Film, as it was then known. Holy shit. It won Best yeah. Score, too? Yeah. That's killer. Yep. Pretty great. Um also, really like, um, I asked you when the film was done, I'm like, but why is it called Crouching Tiger at a Dragon? <laughs> they mentioned those animals once. Still didn't understand that. So I guess that it's a Chinese idiom um, that translates to behind the rock in the dark probably hides a tiger and the coiling giant root resembles a crouching dragon. And what that like tends to represent is like the things that exist that we cannot see that are hidden, but they're there. Um, and so symbolism, baby. Uh, and so I read on Wikipedia, such a good researcher, uh, that it represents like the undercurrent of emotion, passion, and secret desire that lies beneath the surface of society and the civil behavior we're meant to engage in. So I really liked that. But then also on a more literal level, like the prowess technique capabilities that many of these characters have that other people don't even recognize in them. Yeah. There's a really, really, really fantastic moment where one woman sees what another woman is capable of. She suspects it and she like kind of plans this really like little little, tiny moment to confirm it. And no one else sees this about this one woman, which again speaks to like this tradition of like, or this legacy of like women in the film that that is being explored and it's so great mm-hmm. i really liked it um yeah yeah pretty cool it was it was such a surprise but such a good one i i would be remiss if i didn't talk about our very odd audience interaction <laughs> with this film so one of these days we'll freaking go to a cineplex and not have a weird audience thing but uh this was like this is actually like a pretty quiet movie for the most part. Like I said, not a lot of action in between, but there was this person, you and me actually ended up switching spots because there was a person further down the row from us that was on their phone pretty consistently. They eventually put it away, which was good. But every time that somebody on screen kissed, they would just burst out laughing. Yeah. In like a, I am... I'm immature kind of laugh. Yeah. Like, a, oh, they're kissing and <laughs> <laughs> kissing, which was strange because like they're pretty romantic scenes. And I'm like, that's funny. I want to just enjoy watching the romance. Just let them kiss. Yeah. Leave them alone. We don't need, don't, we don't need to laugh at the kiss. Don't kissing. heckle them. 
Yeah. And then they, and then this person like approached us at the end of the movie and was like, so what are you doing here? <laughs> well, yeah, they said, how have you heard of this movie? And I wanted to be like, well, it's very famous. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. How have you heard of this movie? Um, but was it, something was interesting because that person spoke to us about, they kept, they kept saying several times that they speak Mandarin mm-hmm. and that the, and that the dialogue was weird. Yeah. And I didn't quite understand that. But then I read this trivia and I'm wondering if this is what they were speaking to. The main cast aren't native Mandarin speakers. So Chow Yun-Fat's a Cantonese speaker. Chow Yun's Cantonese? Malaysian. Oh. So she speaks Malay and she I grew up speaking English, but not Mandarin. She had to learn Mandarin for this film. She didn't know it. Um, and then, oh, there was another, uh, Cheng Chen is Taiwanese. And I guess I didn't know this which is like kind of shit that I didn't know this considering our brother-in-law and our nieces are Mandarin speakers and from Taiwan Um, that like there's a Taiwanese like accent on Mandarin, even though Mandarin is like the first language of, of most Taiwanese people. Right. Um, The dialect of it, the way, the way they speak it is different than in China. Right. Um, And so I guess there's a lot of Mandarin speaking people who like, that really doesn't work for them in this film because all of it would be like watching for us. It would be like watching a film that's supposed to be Canadian. And then people are like, sounds like they have a Scottish accent underneath. It sounds like they have an Irish accent underneath. It sounds like they have a British accent underneath. It would be really distracting. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's like a, like a big critique of that, which like we didn't notice because we don't speak Mandarin. Yeah. Um, So maybe that's what that person was speaking to. And we just didn't understand that because we're not Mandarin speakers. Yeah, I I can totally see that. I think that's totally fair. However, I will note that is even more fodder of why Michelle Yeoh should win Best Actress because in Everything Everywhere, she speaks English, Cantonese, and Mandarin. Yeah. Well, apparently she, so for this film, she took, she did a year where she didn't work on any other projects leading up to it to finesse um, the martial arts training and to learn Mandarin. Mm. So that's, she's just amazing she's just amazing i just love her yeah she's she's a total babe in this too by the way oh yeah everyone is i mean i'm not super into like the men's hairstyles in it oh come on the little like ponytail exclusive look it's not my not my fave (laughs) um i i liked when jen was masquerading as a boy mulan style i thought she was real cute then which doesn't surprise me that I thought that, but I don't know how she's fooling anybody. Have you seen Mulan? How was Mulan fooling anyone? That's true. Um, oh man, there's so many. Like that just reminded me of that scene where she's dressed like that and she orders some food. Very good. It was a great scene. Uh, there's a couple really beautiful things I want to share with you. So one is um, uh, Zi Jung after she made this movie. She got cast in like quite a few other like bigger budget films that were going to be playing to Western audiences. So Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was like a, it was a like Taiwanese, Chinese, American like co-production. Right. So it was meant to play for Western audiences. It's not like it was this like sleeper hit. It was a big budget movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a a really interesting and and I think wonderful uh, quote that I found from um film journal well they said that this movie play uh 
pulled off the rare trifecta of critical acclaim, box office hit, and gestalt shift. So like critics liked it, audiences liked it, and it made a fucking difference. Right. Like and and it, and it was like artistically, socially, artistically important that it like it's all three of those things, which is it is rare. Did you say artistically twice? What was the first thing I said, you said? Critically, socially, and artistically. Okay, perfect. So, Sorry. Um, but Z Jong, after making this, got cast in a um, film called Hero, a film called Memoirs, Memoirs of a Geisha. I haven't seen that. And I found a quote from her that I just think is really beautiful. She said, because of movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hero, and Memoirs of a Geisha, a lot of people in the U.S. have become interested not only in me, but in Chinese and Asian actors in general. Because of these movies, maybe there will be more opportunities for Asian actors. Which is like, like thinking of everything everywhere all at once as well, right? That, like that is still such a part of the narrative of like all the actors and everything everywhere are just like I wasn't getting opportunities. And but I, as much as it's like I'm I'm lamenting that between 2000 and 2023 that narrative still exists. I also think it's so important to acknowledge, even if you didn't like everything everywhere all at once, that having a movie like that that's not solely in English. And that has a cast of Asian actors who many of them, their first language isn't English. Be a critical and box office hit is fucking important, whether you like the movie or not, because that creates opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So even though we might lament that between Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and everything everywhere all at once, things didn't just magically become perfect. How much worse would it have been if there was no Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Mm -hmm. right and how much worse would it be if there is no everything everywhere all at once it's important and there's such there's such a desire for those films i mean look at what crazy rich asians did when that came out mm -hmm. i remember like I, I work with some with asian i've said this before i work with some asian folks that when that came out it was huge for them mm -hmm. to see that representation for them to take their parents or their grandparents to that and mm -hmm. like them feel seen by that movie too like there's there's such a desire for more of those films and they're great it's just it's just important to have narratives like outside of white people, yeah, white straight <laughs> cis people, right? Yeah. It's it's important, um, able bodied people. It's just and hearing that, hearing the actress say that, I think is so meaningful. Then I think this you're gonna really this is gonna make you emotional. Um, so there's a scene we won't get into what the scene is, but there's a very emotional scene with Michelle Yeoh closer to the end of the film after they. They filmed it. Ang Lee left because he was feeling so emotional. Mm. And he said um, the way that Michelle performs, um, he used like a, a Mandarin phrase that I will not be able to pronounce, so I won't attempt mm. it. But its meaning is your countenance that when the way that you look comes from the heart. And he oh. said that's how she acts. Oh. And I just we just you just showed me this. Um like an Oscar package. Yeah, where the Daniels were speaking about Michelle Yeoh's performance in a particular scene and everything ever all at once. And I literally feel like you could describe it this way. Like what they are saying, Ang Lee was saying the same thing in 2000. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the Daniels literally recounted watching Michelle Yeoh perform in front of them and then getting emotional behind the monitors. Yeah, which is what Ang Lee was saying 23 years ago. And I just think she's such a superstar and when I watch her get emotional in interviews about how people are recognizing that, 
I just think like everything everywhere all at once or not, that's important. Mm-hmm. And particularly if you're a white person, I think like us, mm-hmm. it's important to listen to what Michelle Yeoh is saying. It's important to listen to what Kihi Kwan is saying. It's important to listen to what Asian folks of all ages are saying when they talk about watching this movie. Yeah. Whether we like it or not, we personally love it, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, not to just fall down the rabbit hole of award stuff, but I, I know that the main race right now is between Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh, but it would mean so much to see Michelle Yeoh, who is only like the second ever Asian identifying person to be nominated for best actress mm-hmm. and to have the career that she's had to win best actress would just represent so much and be so meaningful for so many people, not to mention the work that she did in everything everywhere is also just deserving yeah. of it. I wanted to say like, I do get a little bit, I don't know if I publicly want to say this, but there's some awards where I have felt like they gave them particularly posthumous awards, particularly for a particular superhero movie <laughs> where I have felt like the award was given to make a statement rather than because that was the most deserving person. Mm-hmm. So I get nervous about saying, oh, Michelle, you should get it because, because, because I agree with everything you just said. And I'm so glad you said the final thing. I think her performance and everything everywhere at once is on an equal playing field to Kate Blanchett's and Tars. I think they yeah. both do phenomenal work in it. I also think, sorry, Kate Blanchett, I think Michelle Yeoh's performance and everything everywhere all at once contains more consistent nuance. Kate Blanchett is fantastic in Tar, but it's a pretty similar role from start to finish. Whereas I feel like a lot is asked of Michelle Yeoh to enter into these different emotional states throughout the film. Well, and the cast attests to this and everything everywhere, but like the, the main argument is that Kate Blanchett is the movie tar and the whole thing revolves around her and she holds that movie down. But is that what makes you it's, deserving of an award? It's totally true. Michelle Yeoh does the same thing while being kind of the hinge of which yeah. everyone else revolves around, which then makes everyone else great. Yeah. And the cast has said as much. That she it, elevates everybody else. Oh, yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis has gone on and on about without Michelle Yeoh, her performance is nothing. Yeah. Everyone has said the reason that Kihi Kwan, Stephanie Hsu, and Jamie Lee Curtis are nominated for Oscars is because of what Michelle Yeoh was doing to allow them to shine in that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's important to recognize in but addition to all the other things. To bring it back to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it's just so loving her and not having not having really known her. Yeah. Like we watched Crazy Rich Asians before we saw everything ever all at once. I thought she was good in that, but that wasn't really my kind of movie. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't like, woohoo. Um, mm-hmm. but I thought everybody did great in that. We really like Constance Wu, which is kind of what like we were excited about in that film. Then loving her in everything ever all at once and seeing this after, I'm just like, fuck, she's always been so good. And and it took everything ever all at once for me to see that. And I'm glad that I finally can. Yeah. And I'm so happy to go back and watch watch and rewatch her and stuff like seeing her in sunshine and hearing that Danny Boyle wanted to give her the lead role. Like I get that. And then seeing her in Crouching Tiger. I originally the only thing I'd seen her in was Tomorrow Never Dies, like a James Bond movie where she's kind of like the Bond, like she's the Bond girl 
in air quotes, but she is, but she's like can kick ass. She's not mm-hmm. a damsel. It was really cool too to like um, not having seen Crouching, T- Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. There's a shot that they directly homage and everything everywhere all at once. And I was like, oh my goodness, because yeah, I've seen like everything everywhere so album. many times. I was yeah. just like, ah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I was so wrong about this movie. Yep. Even though everything about it sounds like something on paper I wouldn't like, I really liked it. I'm really happy about that. Me too. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel hypnotically invested. Yeah. I was just like drawn, magnetized to the screen. Yeah. Um, it made me ple- pleasantly surprised, but it it made me enormously, enormously happy that I was wrong about this movie because it is awesome. Okay, we did it. Eclectic week over. Let's talk about the dads of the week. Who is your bad dad nominee? I did struggle this week. I've had a couple of weeks where I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, but I ended up going with uh, Theo from The Hunt. So Thomas Bo Larson, he's uh, Clara's dad. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which, you know, I think that the character gets nuanced and that maybe this isn't a totally fair nomination when you look at the film as a whole. But this character of Theo... You know, he's incredibly neglectful of his child for most of the beginning of the film, Mm. seeming to only care about her when she's directly in front of him or when something forces him to acknowledge he has a young child. (laughs) Um, He doesn't seem particularly for the majority of the film reflective on his own thoughts or actions, but rather reactive to what is placed in front of him. And even when everything is pushing him to start to his child first he seems to be doing that only superficially by continuing to listen to what everybody else says about her rather than what she is saying so while he may feel like he is putting his child first he is continuing to be dismissive and neglectful of her by not listening to her yeah and i think particularly when you think about what Mads Mikkelsen and Thomas Vinterberg have said about how the hunt is a film about love i think theo loves his child and yet the way he wields that love is almost like that, oh, well, they're family, so you love them, or, oh, they're your child, so you love them, and he isn't doing the work of really seeing, caring about, or valuing his child on a deeper level. Yeah, I think that that's a really good pick. Um, (laughs) You always say this so dismissively. No, no, I'm not dismissing that. I think that that's really good. Um, (laughs) Again, I think that's really good, but here's mine. I think it's really good. Here's my, <laughs> how do you want me to transition? That's really good. You could interact with what I've said. I agree about your, your pick of Theo. Um, I did not pick Theo. I picked Jade Fox from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, I get that. Um, the reason I picked Jade Fox was this is a good example of a parent figure who holds grudges against the what we'll call the child in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that starts to foster this kind of contemptuous relationship and with the inability to kind of communicate the feelings that exist that this parent is having, in this case, Jade Fox, it, it just, it kind of becomes this vicious, this vicious cycle of, of holding that grudge and being contemptuous and 
having this sort of vendetta-esque attitude towards your child, which how can you grow or learn or adapt in any way if you're not willing to put in that work or to mm-hmm. put in any sort of thoughtfulness there? That just kind of really stuck with me as um, real bad dad material. So I think I think I was struggling because Theo's character becomes more complex and there is some reflection. Yeah. And I really like what you've said about Jade Fox. So for those reasons. Oh, nice. Jade Fox. Don't be our dad. dad. Okay. Rat dad of the week. Um, <laughs> this might be a little wild, but I have co-dads. Oh, okay. I chose Lee Mu Bai and Yu Shu Lin from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. So Chow Young Fat and Michelle Yeoh. Okay. Um, I chose them because they aren't quick to pass judgment and have that be just the way that they think about a person. They mm-hmm. show compassion and there's a drive to to help and there's a willingness to teach uh, as well as like they just they're really patient with people in this film and they try to gain a better understanding of where a person's coming from or what their intentions are and what where they want to go and they kind of work together and have similar outlooks which is why they make a good team they also don't let like jen off scot-free like yeah. they challenge her and unlike jade fox um uh yushu lin is like willing to reflect on like her own thoughts her own actions her own past as she mentors and and engages with Jen, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, that I mean that that dynamic between the two of them and then the two of them separately, and how it all kind of coalesces, just really stuck with me. I wasn't intentionally trying to make a Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon all dads week, but it that just kind of how it shook out. But yeah, who'd you pick? Um, I picked Kenna's dad from Rafiki. Oh, yeah. So yeah. he's played by Jimmy Gathu, and the character's name is John Mora. Um, even though he's like, it's the first film we watched in the week, it's probably the least well-known film we watched of the week, even though I think it's a really great movie. Um, there was something about his character in particular that I found to encompass that like nuance I was speaking about in the film that like doesn't seek easy answers and like, I think Rafiki is a film that really refuses binaries of, you know, bad and rad and trauma and joy and, you know, like progressive and traditional. Like it it shows that like everything is more complex than that. And I feel like, you know, Kenna's father, he's somebody who has a lot to lose. And at the beginning of the film, he seems really absent. He seems really like he puts too much on Kenna. And he, and you can tell he wrestles with those binaries that you mentioned. Yeah. And, and you know, at first he was a character that kind of annoyed me. But then the more we got to know him, the more I realized that, like, he is struggling with being a person in the place that he lives. He's just, he's just wrestling with that. And, you know, when the film really kind of gets down to the meat and potatoes of it. Oh, um, she said it. He just supports and loves his daughter, even when he has something to lose, even when supporting and loving his daughter means that he has to question his own society, his Mm -hmm. own like personal feelings about the place that he lives uh, and his community and his friends. His first thought we come to see is always care. 
it's always like love and care rather than I need an explanation or I'm going to get mad at you, which is very different from other characters in the film and other parents in the film. He is certainly a character that is not perfect, but he also throughout the film seems to be somebody committed to growing and learning mm. with his daughter. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just, I don't know. He's, he's a very small character in a film that hasn't been seen by as many people, but I was really moved by the moments with him in the movie. I agree with you. That's really great. Yep. I I think he's the one. Really? Yeah. I remember his, the way that he kind of navigated through his thoughts and feelings and what was going on throughout the film that resonated with me. Mm -hmm. And then everything you kind of explained to make him rad dad. Totally. Yeah. That hits. All right. So Kenna's dad, John, be our our dad. dad. All right. Awesome. Before we dip out of here, Rad Wreck of the Week. I'm going to let my nerd flag fly a little bit. And uh, I'm going to wreck a game that I talked about last week or a couple weeks ago on the show. And that's the remake of the game Dead Space. I had never played a Dead Space game before, but I know that it is a beloved series that has been around for some time. But my first dip into it was the remake that just came out a few weeks ago. And it is super fun. It is really awesome. If you love survival horror stuff, a la Resident Evil, even The Last of Us, you'll dig this game. If you have the means, highly recommend picking it up. If you don't, maybe jump on YouTube and watch some Let's Plays. I've, I've talked about in the past, I particularly like Jacksepticeye. He, he did a great Let's Play of the remake recently. That, that, that's awesome. But it's great if you and if you like movies like Alien. It's also the reason I wanted to watch Sunshine a little uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, so, yeah, Red Wreck of the Week, Dead Space. Get into it. Super fun. Thank you all so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday, and until then, we really would love it if you could follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Let us know if you'd like us to do a daddy deep dive episode on the first season of the last of us once it wraps uh you can get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxd accounts our usernames are in the show notes and we would absolutely love you forever if you'd share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you're listening from that's gonna do it for these meat and potatoes this week so until next time I'm Kylie, and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot, and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.